Thanks for listening to the Georgetown Christian Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 9 and 1030 and learn more at georgetownchristian.org. Georgetown Christian, we've been in a, a series on evangelism for the last two weeks. We'll probably continue that through the month of October. And, and we've used this, uh, this cartoon from uh, Scooby-Doo uh, just to acknowledge that we're pulling the mask off of some mysteries. Now, two weeks ago, uh, I did enjoy uh, some time off last Sunday. I enjoyed Matthew getting to preach, and I hope that you guys have expressed uh, whatever you received from that message to Matthew. Uh, if not, I'm sure he'll have another opportunity in 2028 or so when I don't want to preach for a Sunday. But until then, I'm going to keep preaching. But uh, it was great to be off. I got to go, uh, thanks to Andrea having a nursing gala in D.C. Our family got to go to D.C. And uh, uh, we got to go to the Bible Museum, which is incredible. Uh, I think maybe, maybe your elective, not your elective leader, Maybe your elective or your life group might want to organize a trip there. And I want to go because it is really an amazing museum that you'll probably have to go back to a couple of times. I, I loved it. And it was a great time with family. Um, all right. So anyway, we're back to this series we've been in for about two weeks, uh, three weeks now. And uh, we acknowledged at the very beginning that there are two groups of people that, that get really nervous about evangelism, and that's non-Christians and Christians. And you don't have to laugh at that joke every time, but it's a reality that we want to recognize. It is true. And if you're not familiar with uh, the Scooby-Doo gang, this is Fred. And at the end of every episode, after Shaggy and Scooby-Doo the dog have probably found some snacks, and Daphne and Velma and Fred, by and large, have done the brunt of the work of gathering clues and sifting through them and putting them all together to, to come to finally find out who is the cause of all of this mayhem. We pull the mask off the monster, and we see the truth is, all along, it was just Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones or Mrs. Jenkins or whoever it is the monster's never as scary once we pull the mask off. And so we've, we've been walking through some of the lies that the enemy tells us. Some of the misconceptions or some of the imaginary hurdles that you and I both encounter whenever it comes to the topic of evangelism. And just like when we're a kid and we think there's a monster in the closet or under the bed and the parents come in after we yell and they shine the light, it's not as scary anymore once the truth, once the light comes to bear on whatever it is that we're afraid of. So in the life of a Christian, we, we just, uh, we discussed this two weeks ago, in the life of a Christian, two different lies that Satan sort of gets us playing like a playlist in our head every day when we wake up. I think these are two common lies. I don't know what evangelism is, and evangelism's not my job. And the truth we discovered together, the truth is evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus, and evangelism is for every disciple. And then Matthew, last week, led us through a, a whole sermon on one of those imaginary hurdles, one of those really large misconceptions, you may even characterize it as an outright lie. I think it depends on how far this has been deeply rooted 
into your heart and life. And that was an unrealistic expectation that we have to know all the answers. All the answers. Now, it's true that Peter said that we must be prepared to give a defense or to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus with gentleness and respect. That is true. But I think the lie is that we have to know all the answers, answer every question right on the spot. And that's a lie. Matthew took us to this scripture where Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. He will tell you what to say. So today we address another one of our hurdles, another one of our lies to sharing the good news. And although there are a variety of ways that we can share the good news or that we can practice evangelism, we're going to cover one of those ways today. As much as we could cover a myriad, today is one way that I want us to become clear on. So one of the questions after uh, we launched this series, we had sort of a conversation listening session after first service and second two weeks ago, and and one of the overarching themes that, that I could say many questions fell under was this question, how do I talk to someone about Jesus? And maybe that question kind of strikes home for you, and that would be because it was representative of what so many people asked. How do I talk to someone about Jesus? So many of the comments and questions and concerns that were shared fell right under that heading. So we're going to talk about one of those today. Bob Russell has a a website, and it's kind of like a blog that he updates about every week. And I read this after our very first sermon in the series And I thought, man, that's great. And I just hit share on it real quick. And then Rick Rowe sent it to me. And then Andrea showed it to me later that day. And so, of course, we've got to talk about it. Well, he tells the story of a man named Tom Ferguson. He served as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company for 25 years. And on the day of his retirement, he types up an email and sends it to his 11,000 employees, thanking them for all of their support during his 25 years of leadership. And he goes on to explain in the email what his plans for retirement are. And his plans for retirement were really basic. I plan to be more involved in my church and to go on some mission trips. Well, Tom hits send, and he goes to lunch, and he comes back. And I'm not sure if any of you have ever experienced this. But he comes back to an inbox flooded with email. And predominantly the email said, congratulations on your retirement. We're so happy for you. But there was another theme in all those emails. And that theme was, what, you're a Christian? What? We had no idea. Imagine how Tom had to have felt. Because these coworkers, for 25 years, he'd worked right alongside at least hundreds of them. And his words and his actions had never really led anyone to the eternal truth that he held himself to be true. He'd been too busy running a company. See, Tom's story only gave himself glory. And that was in Bob's email, I'm sorry, Bob's website. And I thought it fit great with what I want to talk about today. How do I talk to someone about Jesus. 
And we're only discussing one method. But if you like to follow along in your scripture, we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll also be in Matthew 5. I'm going to go there first, but I only got one verse. It's right here. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus has just given the Beatitudes. And now he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, Tom... Tom nailed this first part. In the same way, let your light shine before others that may may see your good deeds. But Tom miserably failed at the second part. And where does the glory go? Glorify your Father in heaven. Tom missed that part. I wonder how many of us, we missed that part. But we're amazing at this first part. Let them, let your light shine. They may see your good deeds. Maybe you're the, the neighbor that pitches in when your neighbor's in a pinch. Maybe you're the, maybe you're the coworker that uh, when another coworker has project, 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 and three of them together are now creating a death spiral for that individual coworker. And they, because they see your good deeds, They come to you. And I mean literally, they see the fact that you're great at what you do and that you're engaging as a person. You're willing to listen to someone else without saying, dude, it's your job. And they come to you. They see your good deeds. And maybe you're the the student or, or maybe you're the friend that whenever your friend has a social life that's starting to spiral, or, or maybe it's your, your family and they have their own issues, be it relational or financial, they come to you because they can see your good deeds. I wonder then, who gets the glory in our story? So we're going to ask that question as we walk through First Timothy. And the question is really simply, who gets the glory in our story? Who gets the glory in our story? And we're asking that question because our overarching question that will not be completely answered today, but we will begin to place blocks of truth in place of a lie. The lie that Satan tells us is that we don't know how to evangelize. We will begin replacing that lie with blocks of truth, beginning with the question, how do I talk to someone about Jesus, we're going to answer that question with a question. Who gets the glory in our story? So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and so many of you are probably aware of the background of 1 Timothy, but I just kind of want to summarize for a second if I can, so everybody's on the same page. Uh, To quickly summarize, Paul met Timothy on one of his missionary journeys, And he took Timothy with him. He took him under his wing. So Timothy is kind of like a spiritual son to Paul. He's trained him up to be a pastor, to be an ambassador of Christ. And he's left him in Ephesus, which is a heck of a place to leave a young man to lead a church. Because if you think of Ephesus, you should think of Vegas. Uh, That's where Timothy is. And his church, he has sent word to Paul that is a hot mess. There are people who are getting so excited about these extensive genealogies. And then there are other people who are are dragging sort of a cultural script into the church, and they want to incorporate that into, guess what? They want to teach. So not only do we have these things that are not true issues and doctrine, but those people who are very excited about them want to teach them. 
So he sends word to Paul saying, dude, help me. And Paul could have written, you know what, I've been there. I've been right where you are. In fact, Paul could have, he could have just reflect back briefly, I want to summarize. You don't need to turn there, but you can. Acts 14, Paul could have responded with any number of stories. He could have said, man, you know, I remember one time we were in this place called Lystra, and we had just healed this guy who could not walk from birth. And all the people were so psyched about Jesus, they couldn't wait to hear more teaching about Jesus. But you know what happened? They decided that because we'd healed the man, that now me and Barnabas, we must be gods. So they thought that me and Barnabas, we were Zeus and Hermes. And they wanted to bring sacrifices to us, Timothy. Get this, Timothy. They wanted to bring sacrifices. We tore our robes and we said, no, no, we're just guys like you. Give all the glory to God. Paul could have written that to Timothy. And he could have said, you know what? They went on from that, that point. They kept wanting to hear more. But these Jewish leaders stirred up some dissenters, and they had me stoned. Then I almost died. So you think you have it bad. Man, I've got it bad. Paul could have said that, and it would have been true. But what Paul said, I think, is important. So before I go into my very prepared sermon, as I practice this a couple of times, I want to let you know one reflection that I think is for somebody. And it's not in my notes, but I think it's for somebody, and maybe that's you, it's interesting that when Timothy, a Christian, writes to Paul, a Christian, Paul is, he's, Timothy accesses Paul because of probably their trust and their relationship they have. But notice when it is that Timothy contacts Paul. It's when Timothy is in crisis. So my illustration about another student or a coworker or a family member coming to you when they're in a pinch, turns out it's not just an illustration. It seems like that's what Timothy did too. He, he came to Paul for some answers, and it was when he was in crisis. And I wonder if God is going to bring anybody into our lives this week in a similar manner. And if so, I think the way Paul responds is a way that you and I can respond as well. So let's look at 1 Timothy. I just want to start in Chapter 1, verse 12, and I'll go through 17, uh, but more time in some than others. So verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Paul first identifies Jesus Christ as Lord. So Timothy's got a crisis, and he reaches out to Paul and Paul, very first, number one, identifies Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you can go back to the beginning of the same letter and see the same thing. And he, he identifies Jesus as his source of strength. This is to a Christian, Timothy. He is my source of strength. I've been appointed to his service. How many of you have ever observed or helped a toddler learn how to clean their room? It's almost comical especially if the room is very dirty. Uh, no matter, it seems, how dirty the room is, the adult who's supposedly teaching the toddler how to clean the room is, of course, doing a lot of cleaning of the room. They're putting a lot of toys back in the toy box. 
And at some point in the adult's labor, the toddler finally picks up a toy and puts it in the toy box. And what happens? There's applause, there's standing ovation, there's great encouragement for the toddler who is now learning how to pick up their own toys. This is us. We're the toddler. We're the toddler. So our testimony should reflect the fact that we're the toddler in this story and that our strength comes from our Lord Jesus Christ because he's really the one who's called us to this. He's appointed us to this. He's provided a strength for us. Nobody's going to come into that room where you're teaching a toddler to clean up and mistakenly think, oh, the toddler cleaned that room, right? Likewise, no one's going to mistakenly look at your life and think, Whew, they definitely cleaned that all up on their own. If, if we're living as Paul is living. Let's go on to see how Paul is living. In the way of Paul speaking, so far, who's getting the glory in his story? Let's, let's use that same lens as we look at verse 13. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. See, Paul did not, he did not glory in his garbage, but he reflected on God's mercy in spite of his garbage. Have you ever heard a testimony that maybe was maybe was supposed to not really glorify the garbage, but glorify the one who's the giver of mercy. Have you ever heard a testimony that kind of, it started like it was supposed to do that, but then it took a turn and really it sounded like they might be reveling in that sin. We had a college roommate that it did not, uh, we did not often miss a devotional time when this college roommate wanted to stand up and revel in his sin. And I would love to tell you that we were just the most mature Christians and we called him out on it right away, but the truth is he would begin reveling in it and he had us all laughing and eventually rolling on the floor. And we actually joined him in reveling in that sin. So who got the glory in that story? See, it was, it was supposedly a life that was left behind. And while the actions weren't continuously reenacted or perpetrated all over again, they were being remembered as the good old days. Remember, Paul used to murder Christians. He, he worked at the, the will of the Pharisees. He would gather those up who claimed Jesus as Lord, and he would jail them, and he would try to get to recant their faith. You can read about the martyr of Stephen in Acts 7 where Paul... Saul, at the time, held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. Paul had a past. He didn't hide his former way of sin, but he didn't gloat about it either. He didn't brag about the way that he used to live in sin. Paul simply pointed out that sin was the problem and Jesus solved that problem. So let's recenter on our question before we move forward in the text how do I talk to someone about Jesus? And we're answering that question with a question that I believe is a tool that roots out the lies that Satan has programmed us to just keep telling ourselves sometimes. And the question is, who gets the glory in our story? When we let, when we let our light shine, when our good deeds are seen 
by others, when we are a salt that doesn't lose its saltiness, then there's going to come a time when someone in the world, probably someone in a trial like Timothy, or maybe like your coworkers, or maybe your neighbors, or your friends or family, they're gonna get thirsty. And they're gonna go to someone who looks like they've got this good life figured out, kinda. And it's at that point that we're going to be able to offer living water in the midst of trial for our friends. Uh, maybe, maybe some of you can, like Paul, say, uh, once I was an addict, and once I chased drugs, once I chased success, maybe, maybe there was a time I was chasing success at a poker table, and I left my wife and kids behind, and it's sort of a prodigal son story. Maybe that is your story, and maybe you're now leaving all of that behind and moving towards crucifying your flesh by God's good mercy and becoming just like Jesus. Verse 14, Paul says that the answer to how Jesus is Lord and he's a sinner and somehow they can be related is all rooted in what? The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul has experienced grace. He talks about, number one, who the Lord is. Number two, his own sinful ways. And number three, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And how does he identify sinners? To save sinners, is it save sinners like those naughty people who want to teach in your church? They want to teach those meaningless genealogies. Is that what Paul says? Paul says to Timothy, to save sinners of whom I am the worst. See, Paul, he, he allows part of his identity to remain in that sinful state because like you, and like me, he's still being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. And he recognizes that as long as he recognizes the need for mercy and grace, that this stuff can be crucified. And there can be a brand new life. But I think if, if, I'm, if I'm tracking with most of Christians, maybe I'm way off and you can tell me later, but I think some of you would say, yeah, that's not my story. I'm not the worst of sinners. It, maybe you would say that I don't have a testimony. Maybe that's how you felt your whole life. I don't have a testimony. I've been in church my whole life. I didn't spend a lot of time in bars. I haven't really run from the law. I've never been in jail, let alone prison. My life has kind of been in church. And so you feel like this might be true, and you start to maybe even tell yourself that, I don't have a testimony. This view assumes something, and it's one more lie that Satan feeds us. And I don't know if it's true for you, but I promise you it's true for me. And that is that, you know, I've been in church long enough, I am actually a pretty good person. 
You see, like Paul will say his identity, a sinner of whom I'm the worst, I've started to take on this identity because of maybe my association with Christians or my, uh, maybe just my profession as a pastor, maybe the time that we spend holding Bibles or singing songs or taking communion or gathering together for the good of our community even, maybe going on mission trips, somewhere along the lines, I began to allow identity to be, I am, I'm actually okay. I'm pretty good. I'm not a huge sinner. And I wonder if that same thing has happened in your life. We don't need to glory in our garbage, but as long as we're Christians and we can say things like, I don't have a testimony, we're confirming that we don't need a Savior. Now, how hard is it going to be to witness to someone, to evangelize, to share how God has transformed your life if you don't need a Savior? Do you see how devastating the lie is that I don't have a testimony? It's a devastating lie. And the the truth might sound something more like God has been so faithful in my life that I was saved from illicit drugs and from jail and running from the law and prison when I was only six years old. Who doesn't want to hear the rest of that story? That's a great testimony. You were saved from all of that when you were six, but it's because of the faithfulness, maybe of your parents, or maybe like Timothy, really like me, your faithful grandparents even. We have a testimony, but if we don't need saving, maybe Scooby and the gang will come along this morning for you, yesterday for me, and pull the mask off, and we'll find that the person behind all of the devastation actually is you and me. We're the problem in this little little lie that Satan will teach us to repeat to ourselves that I don't have a testimony. Because as long as we don't have a testimony, do we need transformation? If we don't have sin, do we need a savior? The power is taken out entirely of our walk in Christ. When we begin to believe that I don't have a testimony. So while we don't murder Christians like Paul, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all filled with sin. And we have to walk in repentance. Not one time repent, hop in, get wet, get out, call it good. We have to walk daily in repentance, turning from the sin that is absolutely in our lives, that we might be transformed into the image of Jesus. Imagine pulling that hood off and seeing that the problem is actually ourselves because we've we've got the glory in our story all wrong and the spotlight shining on us, kind of like Tom. I want to read the last two verses before we close. 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 16, Paul is still writing to this young pastor who's amidst a a real dumpster fire of church problems. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, again, his identity, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So as our identity in Christ is developing, we still retain the identity of a sinner, although we're redeemed, we still realize that we live lives in the flesh of sin that have to be crucified. 
The sin has got to be put to death. And that whole display is an example. The display of us saying, here's my sin. Here's my Savior. That whole display is an example for who? For those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, who gets the glory in the story? Look how Paul closes. Now to the eternal king, immortal, invisible, the only God, Georgetown Christian, if it's big enough, read it with me, be honor and what? Honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So our question that we started with today, how do I talk with someone about Jesus? is answered with a question. Right now, in your story, who gets the glory? It, I'm going to finish a story, but the praise team is going to come out. And you guys know this happens every Sunday. You guys can come out. It's okay. They all know you're coming. <laughs> yeah, and there they are. I want to finish with the rest of Tom's story because we're not without hope. And Tom is not without hope. I think three things you could characteristically say of, and man, would I love it if you just read your whole New Testament this week. It's going to take a long time. Maybe just pick a book and read it and tell me if this is true when you read it. Because I did try to read a lot of the New Testament this week to see all of the evangelical encounters where people would try to share the hope they found in Jesus. And I wish I could say they're all the same, and they're not. They're not all the same. But I was looking for these irreducible truths, and I think we found it here in 1 Timothy, because it's so unusual, he sends us to a believer. But we see it everywhere, and that's number one, Jesus is Lord. If you're a note taker, I'll say it twice. Jesus is Lord. Number two, I am still a sinner. And number three, it's God's grace that saved me. Number one, I'm a sinner. Number two, I'm sorry, number one, Jesus is Lord. Number two, I'm a sinner. Number three, God's grace has saved me. Who gets the glory in that story? Unfortunately, Tom Ferguson discovered that you can do good deeds in the workplace for 25 years and no one know that you're a Christian because you lacked a testimony. In that case, people won't give God any glory. They'll give you the glory like Tom got. Your coworkers, maybe your neighbors or your friends, Maybe even your family will say, you are such a good person. When somebody needs help, you give them that help. Friends, that's a wide open door for a truck to be driven through. And that truck is carrying one question. Who's going to get the glory in this story? Uh, Tom redeems his story. Six months into retirement, he becomes restless and unfulfilled. And you know how this story goes. He goes and looks for another job, and he gets it at another Fortune 500 company. And at this company, Tom decides that he's going to use his position to glorify Jesus Christ as Lord. Tom decides that he's going to lead a weekly Bible study in the corporate boardroom. Tom says this about his decision to put a Bible study in the boardroom, and chaplains at all locations of their company. He says, I made it clear on day one that when we come into this room for Bible study, I'm no longer the CEO. I am a humble man on my knees at the foot of the cross where the ground is level. I'm a sinner just like you. 
And for one hour a week, this is our Bible study room, not a boardroom. Brothers and sisters, when, when we let our light shine and the world sees our good deeds, we have to decide who gets the glory in our story. And as long as we continue to stay in the difficult situation of answering that question daily, we will be answering the question, how do I share Jesus with people who don't know him? I'd ask you to bow your head to pray. Father, this morning, um, we are grateful for your word, your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and lives. We're thankful for the way that you transform each of us from sinners to forgiven sinners. We're being transformed into the image of your son, Jesus, who are growing as witnesses of your love. Father, may our deeds bring you glory, but only as we remember to ask in our story, who's getting the glory? Lord, if, if none of our brothers and sisters here this morning are being asked why they're different, I pray for that opportunity this week. Why are you different? I pray for opportunities to give you the glory and to share how we are just one beggar who found bread and we're looking to tell the other beggars where we found bread. That evangelism is for every disciple and that it's just telling one person about Jesus and that we don't have to have all the answers but we have to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in you. Father, the Community Carvel Fall Festival comes up Saturday. Would you give us opportunities there to show how we're not perfect people in a way that brings you glory, that shows how your forgiveness can make a sinner into someone who loves Jesus even though they are still a sinner. Father, would our community feel the love and mercy that we've felt? And would you show them through us and our actions? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.